I'm going to read from 1 Kings this evening. So you might like to find um, 1 Kings. Uh, it's 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, before I read it, just a very brief um, sort of summary of setting um, this in context. We've been working our way through the life of David and I really want to go into 1 Kings just for this evening to literally bring his life to a close. Um, and there are two passages of scripture that deal with this and they're, they're slightly different. 1 Kings um, is more the sort of shorter political version of the last days or years uh, of David's life and reign. And it follows on obviously from the end of 2 Samuel. In fact, um, in the ancient Jewish uh, scriptures, uh, in some of them, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings were all one book and weren't subdivided uh, at all. And the story follows right on through. And um, the longer and more religious version, if I can put it that way, you find in Chronicles, in First Chronicles, First Kings is going to take us into a whole new world. Um, the opulence. And ultimately, the decadence of Solomon's reign, Solomon, son of David, will soon be followed by the reign of his precocious and rather foolish son, Rehoboam. And during Rehoboam's reign, that's the grandson of David, the nation will split into two uh, because of a bloodless civil war. And uh, Jeroboam will take control of the northern section of the country, uh, which is really ten of the tribes, and Rehoboam will be left with two in the region that will become known as Judah. And after this, they will always, they'll always be referred to as Israel uh, and Judah. Now, we won't be going any further than what we're doing this evening in First Kings. But if you just take a look from chapter 1, just to get a sense of what's happening in these opening chapters. Um, we did read the whole way through this, I think, um, or talk our whole, the whole way through this um, some weeks ago. In the first four verses of First Kings chapter 1, you have the story of Abishag, uh, the Shunammite, um, a young virgin who is brought um, to keep David warm in his old age. And it seems a really bizarre way to begin um, a, a book of the Bible, just this account of how they scour the land to find this young woman. Uh, and the fact that they say things like in verse 4, the girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. And you're left sort of thinking, so what was that all about? Why did we need those four verses of information? Because it immediately moves into the story of Adonijah. Um, Adonijah uh, was David's um, third son or fourth. Uh, one of them, we assume, died much earlier on. But there had been Amnon, who was his firstborn, who was killed um, by his brother Absalom because he raped the half-sister Tamar. Absalom has been killed by Joab, the commander of David's army and David's nephew. And this is the next in line to the throne, really, Adonijah. And Adonijah basically attempts a coup while his father is still alive. So it's not just Absalom who does it, but Adonijah tries the same kind of thing. And um, he manages to get on board, interestingly, this time, um, uh, Joab, who was a key player in all of this. And he gets Abathar, the priest. So he has um, half, if you like, of the critical establishment of David's uh, kingdom and David's court with him. And it looks a very dangerous situation. It looks like there could be a full-blown civil war 
uh, within Israel at this stage before David is even dead. Zadok the priest, Benaniah, Nathan and some of the others remain with David. And what happens in chapter 1, which is quite a long chapter there, what happens is that Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, get to work on David. And they convince him that he needs to name his successor publicly, and that needs to be Solomon, otherwise Adonijah will take the throne. And Bathsheba knows that if Adonijah takes the throne, she and her son will be executed because he was obviously a favorite of David's. There's every indication from Chronicles that David had intended to make him king and Adonijah would dispose of them. So Bathsheba is anxious that David does what he said he would do and make Solomon king. And by verses 38 to 40 of 1 Kings chapter 1, David makes the necessary decree and Solomon is anointed as king. Adonijah panics in fear of Solomon. But by verse 53 of chapter 1, the situation seems to be resolved, where Solomon, anointed as king, accepted by the people, says of Adonijah, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. Now, in a minute or two, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. But what happens immediately beyond that is that in verse 13, you can see that Adonijah um, then goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and asks Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, to put a word in for him so that he can marry Abishag. We're back to our first four verses of the book. And the reason you're given that at the beginning, it's a brilliant piece of writing, brilliant literary device, is that we're now going to see the significance of this woman. And the significance of this woman is that Solomon recognizes that if he gives her to Adonijah, it's a bit like the kind of thing um, Absalom did when he slept with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace. It will be like saying, I have the king's woman. And it will be like an attempt, another attempt, to take the throne. It might not sound awfully sensible to us, but in the context of how these things worked, that's exactly what it would have been about. And Solomon, therefore executes him. Um, So the three remaining sons of David are now all dead. Uh, Amnon, his firstborn, uh, Absalom and Adonijah, all killed killed by other family members, either their own brothers or Joab. And it's, it's a tragic story. Some people say that Solomon was actually looking for an excuse to get rid of Adonijah because he realized he was a threat. And in asking, Solomon is beefing this up and saying to his mother, he may as well have asked for the kingdom. And on the basis of this, um, he slaughters him. So that's the opening. And basically what that is about is it's about the securing of Solomon's throne. And Solomon is now unassailable. There is nobody else before him in line. Because Adonijah could always argue that he was before Solomon in line for the throne. There's nobody left. Solomon is the undisputed heir of David and the throne is secure. That's why I describe 1 Kings as the more sort of political account of what's actually going on. If you turn over to 1 Chronicles 22 and we just flick through the chapter headings, if you're following in the New International Version, uh, on an occasion like this, those headings are quite useful. Um, 1 Chronicles 22 you'll find on page 425. Um, You may remember last week we left the account of David's life with the business of him counting the fighting men and um, God's judgment in that context and the purchase of the threshing floor, which was going to be the site of the temple. And 1 Chronicles 21 on page 424 is the same account virtually word for word. 
Um, last week we noticed just a couple of differences, but it's basically the same story. But what Chronicles does is then it, it fills in a lot of details about, of what happens about the temple. So in chapter 22 you have David giving orders to assemble everyone together and to start making preparations for the building of the temple, which he knows he won't do, but he knows Solomon will do. And if you look briefly through this, uh, when you come to chapter 22 is about him stating that Solomon, his son, will do it, which is probably why Adonijah made the move that he did, because David had indicated that he was going to make Solomon king as he talked about how the threshing floor would be developed and the temple would be built. Um, chapter 23, David establishes um, the, the Levites again, makes sure that everything in terms of the service of the temple will be, will, will be right and, and, and properly organized. Chapter 24 is about the divisions of the priests, making sure that the priesthood is secure and organized. Look at all the details that are there. Chapter 25 is the singers. Um, he was taking care of everything before he died. There wasn't going to be much that Solomon would have to worry about. Chapter 26 is about the gatekeepers. Uh, chapter 27 uh, then talks about all the commanders and officers of the people, the king's overseers. Chapter 28, his plans for the temple. And he goes into all the necessary details of the plans. Chapter 29, he motivates the community to give incredibly generously for the building of the temple. And then at the end of chapter 29, or from verse 10, you have this wonderful prayer of praise that David prays. Totally unlike the final words of David recorded at the end of 2 Samuel, if you remember from last week. Much more praise in this. And then, if you look down, halfway down uh, chapter 29, you can see Solomon is acknowledged as king. And what First Kings takes three chapters to tell us, Chronicles takes, what, six verses. Because the emphasis is slightly different. So when you put the two together, you get the whole picture, as it were. You get all that happened after the threshing floor incident and all the preparations and plans that were made. It obviously took some time. But Kings is interested in simply getting to the nitty-gritty so that we can see how the story is going to develop. We can see the division of the kingdom and we can follow on in what is going to happen to that. So that's the background to what we're looking at this evening. And the bit that I want to concentrate on, because we've been working through Second Samuel, and um, the bit I want to concentrate on this evening is the follow-on bit in chapter 2 of First Kings. So it's back to page 336 and we'll read the first 12 verses. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me, with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. 
But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shemai, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baruam, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanam. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do with him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for forty years over Israel, seven years in Hebron and thirty-three in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. The title, if you want the title for what I want to say this evening, is simply David's Legacy. And I want to look at it in two ways. First of all, looking at verses 2 to 4 of chapter 12, or chapter 2. David's Legacy of Spiritual Advice. And then from verses 5 to 9, mainly, David's Legacy of Blood and Blessing. So first of all, David's legacy of spiritual advice. The advice that he gives to Solomon, verses 2, 3 and 4 there, follows a pattern found earlier in the Old Testament. Moses, when he handed on responsibility of leadership of God's people to Joshua, um, used a very similar kind of phrasing. In Joshua chapter 1 and verses 6 to 9 it says, Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So the words that David uses here in verses 2 to 4 are not new. They're not original to David. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. He's simply trying to reflect the advice that was given in the history of God's people with which Solomon would have been already very familiar uh, knowing the book of the law. He simply repeats it and he applies it to Solomon. Solomon's not hearing it for the first time, but he's hearing it as applied to him. And the key elements of the legacy of spiritual advice that David leaves Solomon are simply these. They are to be strong or to be committed to the Lord and to obey the Lord. It's essentially what he's driving at. It's what Joshua was encouraged to do and it's what Solomon is encouraged to do. Such commitment and such obedience will for Solomon prove the presence of God as comfort and encouragement whenever he needs it. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go was the promise that Moses gave to Joshua. And I think as we come to the end of this series and at looking at the life of David, this advice is probably amongst the most important we could hear. I remember 
at my induction as pastor here in 1995, this is the text, the Joshua text, is the text that was used by Alec Judd uh, when he preached that evening. It proved to be quite prophetic because within a few days I found myself in the middle of a little controversy I hadn't expected, nothing to do with life in Windsor. And it has proved to me very important throughout times over the last 12 years in ministry to be able to go back and to read the notes that I made of what Alec had to say and just go back and read that passage of scripture again about being strong and courageous, about obeying the Lord and about the promise that comes with it of God's presence and God's comfort. And that's what David is saying to Solomon. And that is what I want to say to you and the advice that you should hear and take to heart, especially, but not only, but especially those of you who are younger and younger in your Christian lives. How are you to set the course for the rest of your lives? How was young Solomon, probably only 20 years of age, to manage the options that would lie before him of running a nation? How are you to manage the options that God will present to you and that will arise in the course of your life ahead? How are you to run the Christian race well? The answer is be strong, be committed and obey. Obey God's word and you will discover God's presence with you. Be strong and keep obeying when times are hard and you will discover the grace of God. Be strong and keep obeying when there's no reward and you will discover the blessing of God. Be strong and keep obeying when there's objection and opposition and you will discover the comfort and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Be strong and keep obeying when you're tired and weary and struggling and you will find your strength in God. There's a sense in which when David encourages Solomon in this way, he's encouraging him for the greater good of his people and descendants. You could, personally I don't, but you could read verse 4 as a very selfish interest. In other words, to ensure my legacy, to ensure that it's one of my descendants that sits on the throne of Israel. But I read it more as a concern, a genuine concern David has, that the generations to come may know God's protection and blessing as God's promise is fulfilled. And the terms of the promise are important. Look at what it says in verse 4. Watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul. That's the terms of the promise of God's blessing to David. Or God's promise to David. I think it speaks as much of blessing and stability, security and prosperity for the nation as simply in the self-interest that might be involved in David making sure that his name, a son of David, is always on the throne. The promise is as much about avoiding slavery and disgrace as keeping the name of David alive. It certainly recognizes that you can't live off the faithfulness of previous generations. If they watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man. They will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel, is really what it means. You need to listen to the advice that's tumbling out of this passage. The scripture is saying to us, be strong, be committed and be obedient. It's what Moses says to Joshua, it's what David says to Solomon, it's what God's word says to all of us here this evening. 
And it also says, watch how you live and walk faithfully before the Lord. It's up to you to be faithful. It's up to you to be strong and courageous and obey the Lord. Because you cannot live off the reputation or the work or the blessing of a previous generation. God's relationship is with you and not with the generation before you. Often as children or young people we hate the idea of always being in the shadow of our parents or a previous generation and I know that for people who come to this church it's dreadful sometimes when they walk through and the way they're identified is oh you belong to so and so you know they're known by their parents or somebody else in their family it can be really annoying the one person who never does that is God he addresses you as you He will work out the terms of promise and blessing with you. Not on the basis of what your parents did or didn't do. And as you think about the nature of your life and the opportunities that are before you, there may be many examples and models for you to follow from previous generations. But now the relationship is with you. So you need to be strong. You need to be obedient. You need to watch how you live and walk faithfully before the Lord. It wouldn't surprise me at all if this is what inspired Paul as he writes to Timothy. I'm sure it must have been as he reflected on the advice to Joshua and possibly also the advice to Solomon here. When he says to Timothy, you then my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. When he says to Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. When he says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. David's legacy of spiritual advice is timeless and it's so appropriate and it's for you. Be strong, be committed and obedient. Watch how you live and walk faithfully before the Lord. But in verses 5 to 9, there's another aspect of David's legacy, and it's what I've called simply the legacy of blood and blessing. More blood than blessing. It's a bit of a shame, really. I often think it would be much better if it had just ended in verse 4. It would have sounded a bit more like the book of Chronicles, which ends on a much higher note. There's now some tough stuff for us on blood shedding as well as blessing. David instructs Solomon basically to make sure that Joab doesn't die peacefully in his bed. If you've been with us during the series, I hope you'll have had an appreciation of the nature of the relationship between David and Joab. It was a very tortured relationship at times. There were times when Joab had the upper hand in the kingdom. He didn't have the anointing and he wasn't going to take on his uncle as king. But there were times when he threatened to do it. If you remember, after the death of Absalom, and David doesn't go out to welcome the troops back after battle, and the threat that Joab makes to him, no empty threat, I'm sure, that if he doesn't go out and meet the troops and do what he's supposed to do and stop his crying over the death of Absalom, Joab would take the kingdom from him and give it to another. Probably, meaning Adonijah, actually. Joab was a very powerful man. Joab, as it says in the text, is the one who killed Abner and Amasa, the two people 
that David at different times tried to use to supplant Joab. He made them commander of the army above Joab and Joab killed both of them and David could do nothing about it. But now it's time for revenge. And David at 70 years of age is too old to do it. He has no strength left. Were he to make any physical attack on Joab, he would be completely trounced and he knows it. He's the younger man. And Joab, after his going with Adonijah, has proved for David that he has no love for Solomon and no love for David's choice at this time. So David's instruction to Solomon is clear. Kill him. You'll know how to do it. And if you read on in these early chapters, you'll see how it's done. The tragic picture of a man who shared the reins of power with David being slaughtered as he held on for grim death to the horns of an altar at which he hoped he would be safe. What a tragic way to end. And yet a man who lived by shedding blood dies by the shedding of his blood. And there's Shammai. Do you remember him from Second Samuel chapter 16? The man who threw the dirt and the stones and cursed David, the Benjamite, as David was running from Absalom. And then he turned very quickly whenever David was coming back and Absalom was dead and he started to be nice to David and he apologized more or less and Joab's brother wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill him on the way out of Jerusalem and he wanted to kill him on the way back into Jerusalem. And rightly or wrongly, my guess is that David just wasn't going to give him the privilege. He wasn't going to bow to Joab. It's one of those moments when he takes on Joab and his brother and says, what have I got in common with you two? And he spares Shammai's life and he promises him that he won't be harmed. What a promise. As soon as I'm gone, the promise is over, Solomon. As soon as I'm gone, take him out. You'll know how to do it. You find a way. But don't let him go down to the grave in peace. I think David is saying very clearly to Solomon, you need to get rid of these boys. They're trouble. I think David is saying to Solomon, show yourself to be a man. Take them on. Don't let anyone smell fear off you. I think David is saying that to secure the throne, you need to deal with these people. Don't let me down, Solomon. And if you want to survive, you'll do it. There is, of course, that little bit uh, in the middle there that talks about those who were helpful to him in verse 7. And they were the people and the family who met David and who provided for him and his people while he was fleeing from Absalom. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 17, verses 28 to 29. But as I read from verse 5 on down to the end of verse 9, I part company with David at this point. This part of his legacy is not for us. This part of his legacy, other than the practical politics of it, has really very little to offer us. I don't see him in this mode as a useful model. And the reason is that scripture is quite emphatic that we now have a different model to follow. The model of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. You see, there is no political succession we need to ensure There is no temporal, earthly throne that needs to be secured for the gospel. The kingdom of God has come in power in the person of Christ. And it doesn't have borders or land that needs protecting. 
The nation of God is now being built with people from every tribe and every nation on the earth. And since the coming of Christ, we're working now within an international trans-global community called the Church of Jesus Christ. The kingdom to which we belong will never have a leadership crisis. There will never be a threat to King Jesus. And that was sorted out at the cross. As Paul says in Colossians, writing to them about the nature of what it means to be forgiven in Christ, he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The fears that David had for Solomon don't apply to us. There is no threat to our king. There is no more succession. There's no more blood to be shed for the sake of the kingdom of God. The last blood that was shed for the sake of God's kingdom was shed at the cross. So we look at David's advice on settling old scores and can be grateful that it's no part of our experience. It's still a temptation. It's still a temptation to outflank those who give us grief and win over them. It's still a temptation to deal with those by whom we feel threatened. It's still a temptation to try and outflank those who hound our sense of peace and annoy us. We might not be tempted to liquidate them, a la David and Solomon style, but we might be tempted to cut them down, to cut down their reputation, to cut down their own sense of worth. And Peter gives us very clear instruction as to how we are to deal with any sense of anxiety or opposition or threat that we experience in the kingdom of God. It's very clear. We are to follow the good models of the past, but remember that the ultimate model is Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is no threat to your king. And there is no reason why you as a Christian should feel threatened. So we conclude this series on David with good advice. The legacy of good spiritual advice. Be strong, be committed and obedient. Watch how you live and walk faithfully before the Lord. And we leave with an example of a legacy which is to be avoided. The bloodletting legacy. Because a new king is in place whose position is unassailable. There is to be no more shedding of blood. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So entrust yourself to him who judges justly. And may God give us the grace to do so.